please could you turn back in the word of God to Philippians and chapter 4 and verses 8 to 9. Let's just pray once more. We pray, O oh God, that this supernatural book would work powerfully and effectually in our hearts. We pray you would speak to us, speak to the life of this church, speak to the situations that are in the church, speak to our needs, Lord. Not to our felt needs, but to our real needs, we pray. Renew our minds by thy truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I must confess, this, these two verses, verse 8, particularly verse 9, I, I, I didn't understand until I studied them this week. I often used to read verse 8, and uh, now I realise, think about it in a very superficial way. Uh, I used to think about it in terms of, you know, uh, listening to listening to pure music or um, beholding beautiful scenery, whatever is lovely, uh, whatever is majestic, whatever uh, lifts our spirits, not not putting before our eyes things that are unclean. Now, indeed, it certainly means nothing less than that. But actually, this passage is, has to be understood within its context. He opened this context about standing fast together in verse 1, being united. He then introduced a problem that had arisen in the church between Judea and Syntyche. And then he is beginning to deal with how do you respond to trials and conflicts, and in this particular context, the conflict within the church. And he says, well, there's, there's a number of things you can do. Firstly, rejoice in the Lord always. Don't be engulfed by the problem by the difficulties. Don't allow these things to sap you of all your joy. Focus on the unchanging truths of God and his word and his gospel. You always have something to praise God for in difficult times and in conflicts and in trials. And then he says, be forbearing or be gentle. Uh, don't, don't take these things too much to heart. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Be patient with one another. Be gracious to each other. Why? Well, the Lord is at hand. He's coming again. He, he will bring the truth to light when all is said and done. And he says, but also be assured, the Lord is at hand. That Lord at hand has two meanings. He's coming again. He's near. His coming is near. Be, being comforted. But also, he's near now experimentally. He's a, he's a helper who's an ever-present help in time of need. So as you deal with these conflicts, as you deal with these trials, as you deal with these problems in the church, the Lord's at hand. He, he, he's there to bring healing. He's there to bring help. He's there to bring his peace into the situation. And then he says, be anxious for nothing. Take no fault, literally. Don't, don't be preoccupied by the problems. Rather, go to God. God is available. The Lord is at hand. Prayer, that word prayer means go to him. Pray to God. And then bring to him the needs, the supplications, all things. And as you do so, the peace of God, which transcends understanding, it's not proportionate to what seems humanly reasonable. Your situations and your trials are so overwhelming and so bad that humanly there'd be no reason to have peace. But it's the peace of God. 
It's the peace of God which says, I am greater than this problem. I am greater than this trial. Trust me, believe me. And the world looks at a Christian and says, how can you have peace? Because it's the peace of God. The Lord is at hand. But notice the word finally in verse 8, he's still dealing with the same issue. Do you see that? One of the reasons the AV Bible, it's not, it's not, I'm not saying it's because AV is a better Bible, I'm just saying a lot of the AV editions of the scriptures don't have the, the man, man-made subheadings. Now sometimes subheadings are helpful if you're trying to find your place in the Bible, so they have their use. But they wouldn't be meditate on these things, as it is in my version here, above it. That was not in the text. It would just say, finally, in other words, the last thing I'm saying to you about dealing with conflict in the church and dealing with these trials is, brethren, meditate on certain things. Choose to be deliberately thoughtful about the right things. Think about what is true. Think about what is lovely. Think about what it would mean to be just in this situation. Just towards God. Just towards your fellow man. Be reasonable. To, be reasonable, that would mean. Think. Can't, don't, because the inverse of this is you could be preoccupied by what is untrue, hearsay, suspicion. You could be preoccupied by what is impure, impure thoughts, malice, envy, wrath, jealousy. And so you have to make a deliberate choice when these things occur in the church to proactively meditate and think upon what would it mean to be governed by the truth in this situation, not by my, my, my emotions and feelings and my suspicions. What would it mean to be governed by justice in this situation? What do the scriptures require of me? What's my duty before God? What's my duty before my brothers and sisters? You see, because so often things get out of hand, things blow up, because we stop thinking. We are governed by our feelings and our emotions. And we read into things. It's very important that we are governed by what is clear and what is true and what is just and what is lovely. What, what, what qualities are lovely? What are the kind of qualities that even an unbelieving world could say are lovely qualities? Qualities like humility, patience, these kind of things. So I'm going to unpack those words tonight. We're going to look at them in detail I'm going to unpack them tonight. To, this morning, I just want to focus on the initial need to be thinking Christians. This is what will enable us to stay calm when everyone else is losing their head, as Rudyard Kipling said in his poem. So often what we need to do when our emotions and our feelings are all over the place and up the spout is to stop and think for a moment. Think. What do I know for certain? What is true? What has God said is true? What is true about this situation? What is not true about the situation? What is pure? What should be my motive? What should I be aiming at? What should I be... Fun- you see? And, and when we do that, we are giving wisdom. You see, so often we say, if any of you lack wisdom, ask. Well, that's, that's verse 5 and 6 and 7. That's bring your supplications to God. I need wisdom to solve this. I need wisdom to move forward. I need wisdom to deal with this problem. But, but how do you get wisdom? By meditating on the scriptures. By thinking. By weighing. By asking, what does God say is lovely? What is of good report? What is just? And as you do, God gives wisdom. It's not sometimes I used to think, you know, James 1, 5, if any of you lack wisdom, that we just sit there in our chair and, oh Lord. It's, like, it's almost Eastern Buddhism. Oh, give me wisdom. And I'm just going to sit there and wisdom is just going to pop into my head. That's not how it works. 
Christianity is distinctly a thinking faith. That's why he's given a book. What's the longest psalm, beloved? Psalm 119. You're thinking, Tom, don't make that your next series. Because you'll, you'll, be, you'll be dead by the time you get to the end. Or... But you see, so, uh, there's so much repetition in Psalm 119, but like, not, not in exactly the same way, but how I love thy law. It is like my honey to me, or my heart, it yearns for thy statutes. But he's constantly expressing this love for the word and this yearning for the word. Why? Because he's seeking to do what verse 8 says here. To think upon what is lovely, what is pure, what is just. Because he understands that is where wisdom comes. So, and this is important because this is, again, what we're dealing with here is the need for the peace of God. We all need God's peace. We get it through prayer, verse 7, but notice again in verse 9, and again, just to strengthen what I'm saying, that these qualities in verse 8 aren't really merely, nothing less than, but they're not merely going into a great cathedral and going, oh, this is lovely, or going to the orchestra and going, oh, this is so uplifting, oh, this is so grand, oh, this is so noble. That's not what Paul's talking about, and it's clear because in verse 9, the things, whatever things, verse 8, whatever things, verse 8, whatever things, verse 8, 9, verse 9, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me. These are qualities. These are ways of living. I taught you them. You listened to them. You've seen me practice them. And as you do these things, these do, he says, the God of peace will be with you. When does God leave a church? When Christians start acting in the opposite way to these qualities. They don't act on whatever is true. They act on suspicion and, and envy and all sorts of things. They don't seek noble ends. They don't say, what, what will glorify God? Is what I'm doing here? Is what I'm saying? Is this glorifying God? No. Whose aim am I seeking here? Whose honour am I seeking? Whose good am I seeking? What's my motive? And when we stop thinking and dwelling upon what would be the noblest end, what is true, what is lovely, so often things go wrong in churches. This seems to be implying that maybe Udir and Sintiki, this was their problem. They had forgotten... Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We could say that these qualities are fully embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. You could say meditate on Christ. But of course, Christ is the sun. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting by any means we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, seek to bask in the sun. Oh, we love the sun. We're glad to see the sun when we're thinking it's on its way. We're really pleased about that. Um, but there's a sense in which if you, you can't, if you stare at the sun, it blinds you. Sometimes as sinners, we look at Christ and we think, where do I even start? He's so perfect. But that's what's wonderful about Scripture is Scripture provides so many other men and women of faith who weren't perfect, but they embodied these qualities to, to one degree or another. And they could go, oh, well, I can relate to Joseph. <laughs> I can relate to Daniel. I can relate to these people. And so we study the Scriptures and we learn from them how to respond to situations when they arise. So firstly, see with me then the importance of thinking. Does anyone know what time I started preaching? It's my intention to try and look at the clock. No? 
Okay. I'm guessing I've done about five minutes. Is that something about you? The importance of thinking. We're going to start at the end of verse 8 here. And we're going to study and look at this word, meditate. Meditate on these things. He lists a number of virtues and says, I want you to meditate on these things. And this introduces us to a vital principle that the Christian life and Christian living and holy living depends upon careful thought. You know, this is very different to the way the modern Christian approaches sanctification and holiness. Today it's all about, and I'm not saying this is the case here, but it's about going to a meeting. It's about getting slain in the spirit or baptised in the spirit. It's about sitting there and waiting for something to happen to you. No, says Paul. Paul is saying that your holiness, because these qualities are like holiness broken down into piecemeal, he's saying your holiness occurs as you think. And actually, this is the counterbalance then to do not be anxious, because we saw that in Matthew, that's translated particularly in the AV and rightly, take no fault. So what we're to do is the opposite of anxiety. Anxiety occurs when we begin thinking, and I'm going to be thinking about this more tonight, but we're going to be thinking upon hypothetical possibilities, things we can't prove. What if this is going on? What if that is going on? What if they're thinking this? Uh, what if that happens? Impure thoughts. These aren't accordance with the truth. And you develop unholy attitudes. And it can cause you to act unjustly towards God and towards each other. Paul would say, no, 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 that's anxiety. That is focusing on uncertain things. We're to think upon these virtues. In other words, right thinking is essential to Christian stability. Are you an unstable Christian? Then you need to start thinking more. See, it's not take no fault. Jesus isn't saying stop thinking. He's saying stop thinking in this way. And well, again, I'll consider some more on that tonight. Notice then how the answer to living in turbulent times, and again, just to remind you of the Philippian context, they've got false teachers, they've got church conflict, they've got enemies, they've got a godless, immoral society. There's so much to discourage them and get them down. The solution to being stabilised and at peace through such times is careful thought. Now, I like to look up a concordance and to see how the word is translated in other places because it sheds light on the word. The, the dictionary literally says this word literally means to calculate. So you could, a wooden translation would be calculate these things. The idea is in ancient culture is on the scale. So you want to buy five kilograms of rice. And so you put a five kilogram weight on the one side of the scales and what happens next? You pour the rice in until it evens out and you know now you have five kilograms of rice. You've made a correct calculation. And that's what Jesus is, saying, Jesus is saying through Paul. In these circumstances, you need to be very careful to think precisely. Not with your feelings. Not with any suspicions, which may have been what was going on with Judea and Syntyche. You need to think very carefully, precisely, Biblically. Now, how is this word used? Where is because what I'm trying to say is by a look of a concordance, you can find verses where this same word is used. And it's fascinating the options that I was given. It sheds so much light on exactly what Paul is calling for here. The first one is in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. The exact same word is used here. 
It was the first one in my list on my concordance. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, speaking about the qualities of love, which again is in our passage. So here is an exposition of one of the qualities that we are seeking to pursue, to think upon, to seek to live out. Love thinks, there it is, thinks no evil. But if you have a reference Bible, it literally says keeps no accounts of evil. There you have that word calculating. You're not making a calculated record of evil. Maybe that's what Udia and Syntyche were doing. You did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. No, love doesn't do that. Love does not do that. And you're to think about in these situations, what does love do? What is lovely? What is pure? What is right? Another example is actually in Philippians. Philippians 3 in verse 13, he says, I do not count myself. I do not count myself to have apprehended. He is making calculated, careful self-assessment of his Christian life. He is looking at his heart. He's evaluating his motives. He's looking at his works and he's concluding, having made a very careful, precise, calculated assessment, I have not apprehended. I am not holy yet. I have a long way to go. But I forget what is behind and I press on to what is ahead. Another example would be back in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 2. I should have given you this one when we were in Corinthians, sorry. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 2. In fact, I think that's the wrong... That's the wrong reference. Forget that one. 1 Peter 5 verse 12. There's a typo there. Peter 5, verse 12. By Silvanus, our faithful brother as I consider him. You see that? That word consider there is the same word, meditate, think, calculate. I have evaluated this man's character. I have thought very fairly to him. I have weighed up his actions, weighed up his teaching, and I consider him, I calculate, I believe him to be a faithful brother. And so Paul is saying, in trials, in difficulties, when all is going on in your life, don't stop thinking. Don't allow your emotions to take control of you. And don't allow your thoughts to be governed by the circumstances. Rather, think upon the qualities and the virtues that are necessary to navigate the circumstances. And so Paul, when his outward body is, is wasting away, when he has sleepless nights, when he's buffeted, when he, is, uh, he faces lashings 50 times, what does he say? He thinks about what is true. Oh, but my inward man is being renewed day by day. And he thinks about these momentary troubles compared to the glory that to come our light. You see, he's thinking. He's being enabled by God's grace to respond to what is occurring and to deal with it righteously. And so particularly, again, the immediate context is you dear and syntyche. Please be sure to give careful thought. What is true? What do I know is true? And, and nothing more than the truth. What can I prove? What is lovely? What is pure? What is just? 
And I wonder how, if we really did that, how much that would solve a lot of our internal strife, if we really gave thought to this carefully. Let me quote Jeff Thomas, our beloved friend, on this. I read his exact sermon on these words, and he puts it so well. All you think about must be compatible with the gospel. What you ponder and what you give proper weight and value to are to be these true, noble, right, pure, lovely, lovely, admirable thoughts. This is a very practical list. To live as Christians, as men or women, we need these graces. Think of a delicate relationship like you dear in Syntyche, where there is suspicion and uncertainty has developed, where we must be so careful not to allow our judgments to be clouded by half-truths or innuendo. We mustn't become so preoccupied by this person and suspicious of him. It is a long-term relationship when we have to say to ourselves, I must think what is true and noble and right and pure and lovely. There can be no recovery of broken relationships without that. So encouraging this mindset is to, to the way to achieve what Paul has just been telling us. To rejoice always, not to worry, to be gracious and gentle and knowing the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds by always setting our minds on a panorama of graces such as these. Paul is pleading for a serious mindedness in the Christian's whole attitude to life. He is not asking for joyless, obviously, to be joyless. Because he has just exhorted us to rejoice always. He is not urging us to become Christians, kermagudgeons, because he is defining true believers as those who have a serious outlook on life. They must always be straight and their thoughts are pure, clean and lovely. What a high calling this is. Has that changed the way you understand these verses? Because it was mind-blowing to me to see that this, this is the context. Now notice a few things about this phrase, meditate on these things. It's in the present tense, every moment of every day. It's in the active voice. What that means is you're to take responsibility to do this, not others for you. You're to be doing this. Thirdly, it's in the imperative mood. This is a divine command. And to not do this is sin. And worthy of repentance. And because it is a command... If it is not obeyed, not only is it sin, but you will live, and you will be unstable and you'll be tossed to and fro. What we're saying then, beloved, is this. Right thinking leads to right living and right behaving. You cannot think wrong thoughts and live right lives. Garbage in, garbage out. A computer's output is dependent upon its input. We've seen this from previous teaching on the Lord's Day in Matthew, in Mark's Gospel, about impure, evil thoughts. All these things originate in the heart. And scripturally speaking, the heart is where the mind and the will and the affections reside. It's the centre of your human personality. And so if you dwell upon thoughts from the gutter or from the pit of hell, you will live gutter hell living. I love how it's translated in Proverbs 23, 27. For as he thinketh in his heart, so he is. What you dwell upon, you become. You will become in practice what fills your minds in thoughts. Godly thoughts, godly living. Stinking thinking, stinking living. Rotten thoughts, rotten lives. Dark thoughts, dark lives. Immoral thoughts, immoral lives. I was at school when Jamie Oliver led his famous campaign, You Are What You Eat. I have never forgiven Jamie Oliver because you know what he did? He took away our vending machines. 
I had a daily routine. I'd go to the vending machine and I would get my citrus polos. And I came to school one day. The vending machine was gone. Okay, I thought, I'll go into the hall because they sell donuts and cookies in the hall. They didn't sell donuts and cookies in the hall. Instead, they were selling fruit. You're kidding me, I'm 15 years old. My mum always tries to get me to eat fruit at home. This is the one place where I can eat what I want, do what I want. But Jamie Oliver was, to some extent, whether it was a bit kind of dict- dict- almost dictatorial, you know, we're already taxing our sugar now, we're being told by the government what we, how much, what we can drink and oh, what kind of cars we can drive. But there's a sense in which there's a truth to it. You are what you eat. If you eat too much sugary food, what do you end up getting? Diabetes. If you uh, drink too much alcohol, you certainly end up looking 20, 30 years older than you actually are. I saw a picture yesterday of Paul Gascoigne. He's only 59. And the man looks like a 90-year-old man. Substance abuse, you are what you eat. And you are what you think. When we say things, when we say things to one another, we need to be very careful to ensure where is this thought coming from? Why am I saying this? What's my aim in this? Whatever things are noble. What's the noblest end to pursue? God's glory, not our own. How would that change the way we deal with things? The way I put it like this, imagine this glass is filled with dirty water. Impure water. That's you and I by nature. How do I get rid of the dirty water? I need to pour in fresh water. I could do that two ways. If I stand it under the tap and have a powerful spray or water coming out, what, and into, what eventually is going to happen? the dirty water is going to be misplaced. Or I could put ice cubes in it. And gradually those ice cubes are going to displace the dirty water. And that is what we're to do. Evil thoughts, evil desires, evil attitudes, they will arise in our hearts because we're sinful. But we have to choose deliberately to think about these virtues. And they will displace and dislodge our sinful thoughts and desires. Now, secondly, I want you to see the importance of thinking to Christianity. And I'm, I'm, I'm making a broader point here. I'm not being as personal. I'm being more general. I want you to understand, beloved, that Christianity is a distinctly thinking religion. Have a hallelujah for that. We, we, we are not like the Eastern mystics that says, empty your mind. Go to your happy place. All that stuff has come into our secular counselling now. Some of it can be helpful, I don't deny. But some of it is just pure nonsense. Empty your mind. The thing is, when you empty your mind, you're vulnerable to be abused. And to be, t- to be led astray. The last thing you want to do when you've got a so-called teacher telling you to empty your mind is empty your mind. Because you empty your mind, you forget all your basic principles and they can get you to do what they want. Never empty your mind. Christianity is a religion of the heart and mind. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And it's like modern Christianity has forgotten the last bit about the mind. There used to be a time, didn't there, when Christianity was known 
for producing great works, great literature. We have a hymn book that people despise because they're old, full of tremendous truths about the God of the scriptures. That when you read them and sing them, if you believe them in your heart, how can they not bless you? And today, instead of celebrating our heritage and our great resources that the saints have given to us, the saints who actually thought about the God of Scripture, we have got mind-numbing, repetitious stuff that feels good because the tune's nice, but it lacks the depth. And I'm, and I'm not saying it's just a hobby, it's a genuine, serious issue. Because even if you're not at risk of necessarily the extremes, we are at risk of the subtle ways, this, rein, this approach to moving Christianity away from an intellectual faith to a feeling-based faith. Indeed, there is a danger of uh, dry orthodoxy. Yeah, we, we, we know that. But the reaction to a dry orthodoxy has become, it's all about my heart, it's all about how I feel. And so people would rather go to a place where they are made to feel good, even though what they're hearing is just sentimental things. It's not the God of Scripture. Sadly, the culture's approach, and this is an example of where the water of the world is coming into the ship. Indeed, we are to be in the world like the ship is to be in the sea. But what happens when the Spurgeon said, when the sea invades the ship, the ship goes down. The whole problem is with the world is that the world is at enmity with God because of its evil thoughts. And if we begin to allow the world's approach, because what is the world saying today? The world is saying, for example, don't look at your genetic body and reason from that that biology is, dis- is, is, is unchangeable. Whatever you feel, that is what you are. There's nothing rational about that, is there? But it's what people feel. And I'm going to a very extreme example. But today, today people have now uh, made their minds a slave to their passions. Again, maybe this was going on with you do in Syntyche. It was all getting on the level of passions and emotions. And they stop being rational. Today, thinking and rationality is seen as a hindrance. We are living in a day where we have a feeling-based Christianity. Hymns used to be deeply doctrinal. Preaching was doctrinal, logical and deep. I mean, sometimes we get fed up if our preacher goes on for longer than 40 minutes. Try listening to a Puritan sermon, you'd be there for three hours. Now, I'm not proposing that's what we should do. But what, we, what that shows us is they had a very higher value on the importance of rational thinking and the need to be logical and scriptural and methodical. You know, John Owen is, you either love John Owen or you hate John Owen. I quite like John Owen. You get used to him after a while. But you see, John Owen, he, like, he makes a point and he makes another hundred points before he comes back to the first point. What he's doing is he's exhausting the issue. He is dealing with every possible inconceivable objection that there is and therefore coming to a conclusion. We, we've lost this in modern Christianity. There was a time when the contents of what was sung mattered more than the style of how it is sung. The problem is, uh, an emotion-based Christianity may give you a momentary uplift but it will leave you in the doldrums on Monday afternoon. But a reasoned Christianity... A biblical Christianity, an intellectual Christianity, will equip you to live stable and godly in Christ Jesus. 
I love how you see this link between the mind and the affections. I haven't got time to turn there, but in 2 Kings 22 of Josiah, his secretary says, we found the law. It's lie dormant. And so he reads the law. And it says Josiah heard the law. He rent his clothes. His mind is suddenly realising, we have broken God's commandments. And it says at the end of Josiah's life, there was no one whose heart clung steadfastly to the Lord. You see, true intellectual Christianity is not in direct contrast to heart religion. In fact, it is as our minds are renewed that our hearts are engaged and our affections are stirred. The other impact we've seen is pragmatic Christianity. We're living in a day where church is determined the right action by the outcomes. If it produces the right results, it must be right. And this is an unthinking Christianity. So people say in the church, will people like this type of worship? Or will people respond to this type of evangelism? Will this action maintain the unity of the church? Will it make people leave the church? Will this way of doing church make people uncomfortable? I'm aware of two men in the ministry who had people come to him when things were difficult and people were leaving and said, if you carry on with this principle, you're going to kill the church. What does a man say to that if the principle is biblical and scriptural? Does he concede to the pragmatism and the feeling? Now, interestingly, he stuck to his guns and now his church is three times the size as it was when he came. And I'm not saying, therefore, that's right. Even if the church had closed, he still would have been right because he was scriptural. But you see, we are living in a pragmatic age. Today, people ask, will this be divisive? Before they ask, is it true? Truth is by its very definition, what? Divisive. That whole passage we read, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. That speaks of division. You know, I remember reading in Exodus 32, this dish was driven out to me quite clearly, when Israel was worshipping the golden calf. We read they had turned aside quickly. They'd made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God. They were dancing. It was a great celebration. It felt really good. But I love what it says in verse 26. Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, see he's thinking, he's reasoning, he knows what God's law says. He says, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me, and all the sons of Levi gather to get themselves together to him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and let every man kill his brother and every man his companion. Truth divides. Listen to what one preacher said on this. Too many people go to church not to think or to reason about the truths of scripture, but to get their weekly spiritual high, to feel that God is still with them. Such people are spiritually unstable because they base their lives on feeling rather than thinking. We have come today as consumers, wanting to have our feelings stirred rather than have our minds renewed. So actually, the scriptures say, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. The Lord God says to you, your thoughts are not my thoughts and my, my ways are not your ways. So you come and have your mind sorted out. 
You come and see how faulty your thinking is, how faulty your worldview is, how faulty your approach is by my words. And then you will know what is acceptable and pleasing in my sight. And you'll be able to offer yourself by the tender mercies of God, yourselves as living sacrifices. This is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Well, I had another point, but I'm going to stop there and shuffle it to this evening. Because I'm still uncertain about when I started uh, this morning. But are you a thinking Christian? When you're tempted to do something or think in a certain way, do you stop and go, what is pure, what is noble? Do you, how did Daniel respond? How did Joseph respond? How did Ruth respond? How, how, did, how did God's people respond in these same situations? Find a situation like yours. You're in a situation where it's certain that, that you're to face calamity and you think, what did, and it might even be learning, learning what to do by what they did, what they did wrong. So you go, Abraham, he lied. He didn't trust the promises of God. Oh, right, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be governed by the truth, what God has promised. Sometimes we learn by the examples of how not to do things. We learn what is true, what is lovely, what is pure. Are we thinking Christians? And let me say, this is not opposed to heart religion. Because I don't see how you can be taken up with the glory of God and thinking upon such an excellent and exalted theme as the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace. That Christ Jesus, God's son, came into this world to die and suffer the penalty that you and I deserve to suffer and to rise again that we would have new life. How can you think about the, the gospel of God? And have hearts that are cold and unmoved and unfeeling. Now, sometimes it's not an immediate thing. It's not that you, your mind is renewed at church and you feel great after. Maybe you've got repenting to do. Maybe the well of joy has been filled up by the Philistines, as it was in Abraham's day. And you need to clear out the muck before you can allow the well and the pure water to rise within. It's impossible to have joy if there's unrepentant sin, if there's things from your past, if there's things that you've not dealt with and confronted and faced up to. But as you repent, as you go to God, in his presence is fullness of joy. There are pleasures at the right hand of God, at the, at the Son of God's. He is the pleasure of God. He is the joy of the Lord. He is the one who gives peace and joy to his people. And that's what I love. We're going to look at this more tonight. But it's as you think upon these things, the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace. This stabilises us. So are we going to be a thinking church? Don't worry, my solution is not going to be I'm going to preach for two hours next week. That's not my intention. Um, but are you going to come with that willingness to engage? Now, here's a number of precise applications. If it's a thinking faith, what does that say about the time of bed you go to bed on Saturday night? You see, if you really are committed to the loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, there's going to be so many outworkings of that into your daily conduct. I need to worship God with my mind at church tomorrow. You know, if you're not, if you're not knackered at the end of the Sabbath day, you're not at a Sabbath day. There is a sense in which this is the most tiring day of the week because you're engaging yourself in the highest work that you can do, the worship of God, and he requires all of you, all of your strength, all of your minds. Anything less than that is, is, is not loving God. He is worthy. Do you not give your mind to your assignments, to your paperwork, to your bills? 
What about his word? You know, I, I, I don't buy this whole, you know, I mean, granted, a preacher can preach badly for very long. And I've done that probably many times. Maybe you're thinking that now. <laughs> but, but I don't buy it as a principle. Forget who's the preacher. As a principle, I do not buy it that 40 minutes to an hour is too long for you to give God with your mind. Because I'm pretty sure in the week you give, your, you give your daily tasks five, six, seven, eight hours with a lunch break in between. And he is worthy of more than that. Let's raise the bar, beloved. These attitudes are often a reflection of being lukewarm. Let's call a spade a spade. Let's say it for what it is. Let's repent. Let's say, God, we are so half-hearted. Our minds are so fickle and tossed to and fro. Let's commit ourselves to being a church. That learn in crisis, that learn in difficulty, that learn when bad news comes to engage our minds with what is true, what is lovely, what is pure. And it will go a long way to lessening the burdens 